You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Fashion and technology are two worlds that Nick Knight has never shied away from. In an impressive four decades of creating work that's helped shape the industry of image making, the photographer, director, and founder of Show Studio has managed to remain at the forefront of innovation. While so many of us fret about the arrival of AI and all the ways it might replace our way of doing things, he talks about the inevitability of evolution and all the excitement that it entails. In addition to his work for iconic brands, magazines, and having works exhibited worldwide at various prestigious institutions, he's also never been afraid to champion new and emerging talent on his platform. Today we're granted access to the mind of a master and given the chance to learn about what really matters when making work to remember. This is Nick Knight, and we are talking about what is contemporary now. So in the age of skill acquisition and constant conversations around things like creativity, sort of governing the future in an increasingly more technological world, one has to ask Nick Knight, who's very much considered a creative mastermind, do you feel like a lot of your talent and curiosity was exclusively nature, or were there components of nurturing in your childhood as well? Certainly my parents were very liberal. My father was a psychologist. My mother was a physiotherapist originally. So science was a big part of our upbringing and the sort of appreciation, if you want, and the sort of involvement with nature was always very important within family. Well, because my father was a psychologist, he had, a, I guess, a probably slightly strange way of bringing up children, but he decided to do it without a use of discipline. So I think he, probably in rebelling against how he was brought up and the sort of rather Victorian values that were used in his upbringing and in my mother's upbringing. And they decided to bring their children up in a very, very different way. And so we were never sort of told, you can't do this, you know, well, obviously we were, but you know, we, certainly we were never beaten or hit. We were always encouraged to sort of find out about the world through experience. Age six, my father took me to strip clubs in Paris. How was that even legal? Yeah, because it was the 1960s. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they weren't the kind of sort of divey strip clubs. They were sort of, you know, the Folie Bergère and the Casino de Paris and Moulin Rouge and that sort of thing. So they're slightly more touristy strip clubs, so they weren't very hardcore. But it was the idea that children should learn about sex through, you know, being naturally inquisitive. And so I was brought up in that sort of environment. My father was very intellectual. My mother was very intellectual too. And they both were very just trying to do things in a new way, I think. My mother had been not allowed to be a doctor, which is what she wanted to be, by her father, who said it was unladylike. So it goes to show you what sort of generation you're dealing with. And I think she was frustrated by that, and therefore that frustration, I think, to a certain degree, got passed on to me and my elder brother. But my elder brother became a physicist, and I was sort of thought, actually, you know what, I'd like to be a doctor. So that's where I was going originally. However, I don't necessarily, or certainly at that time, I didn't necessarily have the discipline to study. And because of all the other ways that we were brought up with a lack of discipline, other things in life seemed much more accessible and interesting and relevant to me at the age of sort of 16, 17, than knuckling down and really working hard to get the grades in my exams to get into medical school. So I got into a sort of different version of medical school than the idea that I was going to study human biology, but I was going to swap out into medical school at the end of my first year. Got to university, realized it absolutely 100% was not for me. And I had by chance 
had done an A-level in photography, just really sort of to fill in time and found that I was reasonably okay at it, which was quite interesting because I wasn't really, I wasn't really okay at any other part of my academic curricula. So it was a sort of the only thing I was any good at, if you want. So when I dropped out of university or got asked to leave university, you know, I really sort of thought, well, actually, you know, there's some things that I really enjoyed doing and that I had some talent in. So surely if I work really, really hard, I might be able to make some success of this. So I think it was a very good upbringing in that way. It doesn't necessarily mean that it was easy and the sort of lack of parental discipline meant that as I turned into a teenager, I was slightly wayward. Because if you don't really have any boundaries set by the family, you know, and you don't really care about the boundaries set by schooling, the first real boundary you hit is the law. So, you know, I was skirting on the edges of what was permissible or acceptable or what I could get away with throughout my teenage years. But there was no drama in the family, no sort of feeling of things I had to resolve later in life. So I had a good, you know, very good grounding to come off the rails with. (laughs) And it sounds like they were supportive of the segue that you made in terms of your educational trajectory. They wanted the children to be happy. My father and mother only really knew about creating a career through science and having an income through studying science. You know, the arts, literature and things they loved, but they didn't see it as a way of making a career and being able to pay for food and a roof over your head and to be able to bring up a family with some of the sort of desires that one has. But they were supportive. To be honest, I didn't have much option in, in a way. Well, I didn't have much option. I'd failed at academically becoming a doctor. You know, actually being able to do something which has some sort of connection to what you're interested in life, whether it's music or whatever it is, you know, it, it feels a lot more real, a lot more fulfilling. I mean, over the years, you've practiced a multitude of disciplines as an image maker, and I was curious about the intentions behind your enrollment at Bournemouth in terms of studying photography. Was it initially an interest in art? Was it fashion already? Did you not know? What was that kind of early inspiration? Fashion, to be honest. And again, I think it comes from my mother. It's a generational thing, and I think it's too old for anybody really to understand now. But she would change for breakfast. She would change for mid-morning. She would change for luncheon. She would change for high tea. She'd change for dinner. You know, she'd change her clothes four or five times a day. Even if it was just my dad, my brother, and I, she was very much into her fashion. And of course, the funny thing was, is although my parents, as I said, were supportive, by they're both worried about me becoming a photographer a little bit later in my career when I started to have some sort of revenue from it and working for the brands. I put my mother in Vogue. I photographed her for Vogue and I'd work for big cosmetics companies like Shiseido and Lancome. We'd get an awful lot of product. <laughs> so my mother, I had one of the bathrooms started looking like some sort of <laughs> perfume shop. And when she died, she was having a dress made by Alexander McQueen, beautiful dress. So she managed to indulge a lot of her love of fashion through what I did. I went into photography very much with the idea that I was super interested in fashion. And fashion was an incredibly important force growing up in Britain. Especially at that time, right? In the 1970s, 100%. It was also a provocation to all of the sort of values that I'd grown up with. And I think you need to provoke and you need to rebel and you need to go against what you've been taught and what you've been shown as a child to work out who you are. And you learn that mostly by trial and error. And then, of course, it coincided with my photography. It was even better. So the first big fashion project I did, and the first big project I did when I got to Bournemouth and Poole College of Art, 
was to go back up to London, which is where I had been previously, and start photographing skinheads, which is actually a project I'd started whilst I was in London. At art college, meant you can do it all the time. So I would check out the college on a Monday and not come back until the following Monday. I'd spend my whole time up in London at different places. And I found it fascinating because it is. You drop yourself into the middle of what is actually quite an extreme lifestyle. And that's quite fascinating. That's a very good way of finding out about life. And it was that actual work that had led to the initial commission from Terry Jones at ID, no? Or was it more so just a timeline? Uh, more a bit of a timeline, to be honest. It was a finished body of work that I was taking around, showing to people, and they were putting in magazines. When I was at college, as I said, I didn't stay in Bournemouth and Poole. I would go back up to London, and I would go walking down the King's Road or walking anywhere, and literally going into shops I like the look of and say, hey, I'm a photographer, and this is my work. Can I do any work for you? You know, and if you go into 10 shops, nine are going to say no, and one might say, well, yeah, maybe. So you sort of find your way in. And of course, I really wanted to do record covers. And I went to see all the sort of record companies, A&M Records and, you know, Rough Trade and all the different record companies. And in those, you find interesting art directors who are looking for new, eager, enthusiastic young talent. And I met up with the art director, Barney Bubbles, who um, sadly took his own life sort of a couple of years later. But he was the first person to really introduce me into the record industry and start to give me work. I think my first proper album cover was for the Psychedelic Furs. And then you sort of went on from there. You were just a young music photographer who was sent to photograph them in the hotel bedroom. And if they were approachable and kind of up for it, you'd probably ask them to take a walk around a block with you so you could photograph them somewhere other than in their bedroom. And so music was actually my way in to the sort of world of getting paid for doing anything. Skinheadism was my real, the biggest fashion project I did right at the beginning because fashion is such an integral part of that youth cult. But, you know, the book was published as I graduated and it won me as many detractors as it did admirers. A lot of people thought I was an unpleasant, nasty right-wing thug, which I wasn't. But, you know, people take what they see. In a way, I quite like the provocation in that because, you know, I was just a sort of slightly not-fitting-in type character. One would do anything just to photograph. Just because, A, you needed the money, and B, it was great photographing. And I sort of really got into fashion by teaming up with a, a young St. Martin's graduate called Simon Foxton. Mm, of course. Exactly, the wonderful Simon Foxton, who had started his own clothes line, and he also wanted to work as a stylist. So he and I worked together. And you know, he introduced me to a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know about, gay culture in London in the early 1980s. He had an absolute love of black culture, so he introduced me to a lot of that. And you know, we just sort of found mutual interest. But you know, I found the whole gay scene super exciting and interesting. And it was something I knew nothing about. And I remember by the mid-80s, I'd done a series of portraits for ID magazine. I think it was 100 portraits. It must have been their fifth anniversary. So I wanted me to photograph 100 people who had been in ID over the previous five years. And so I sort of got introduced to London's Beaumont, you know, sort of who was who. Anybody from Paul Weller to Boy George to Lee Barry. I did a portrait of them, which was a good photographic discipline for me because the ID had no money. So I had half an hour per sitter, no assistant, two lights. Uh, one was a light for the front, one was light from the back, 500 watt bulbs, and two rolls of tracks. And there's 12 frames on a roll of tracks at 24 frames. So you had to get whatever you're going to get with those restrictions. But that's quite good because that means you stop all your fannying around with sort of artifice and loading things. And it's more back-to-the-wall stuff. You have to get it in that time frame with that amount of film, which isn't, as I say, isn't a bad discipline. 
you know, given no restraint, you just sort of tend to spiral into overcomplication, but actually being given quite strong and quite direct parameters of how you can take a picture isn't bad. It's good learning. I learned a lot about photography and lots about lighting. But as I said, it was literally one 500-watt bulb for the foreground, one 500-watt bulb for the background, no assistance, two rolls of film, half an hour. And it meant I met super interesting people like Lee Barry, who invited me to his club Taboo, which literally was like nothing <laughs> I've ever seen before or since, I don't think. And it was incredible. And, you know, on the door as you were trying to go in, there was Nicky Crane, who was one of the most notorious skinheads. And there he was on the door. So it sort of made you think, oh, okay. So life isn't quite as I've been told it is. Here's a man who, you know, when I last saw him, was in the middle of sort of skinheadism, which was supposedly anti-gay and all that sort of stuff. And you suddenly realize that life's much more fascinating than it's made out to be, full of sort of contradictions, unexplained things. You suddenly find yourself in something which is, you know, like being in the film Cabaret, but much more extreme. So I was quite excited by all this. Going from, you know, the world of being in sort of straight clubs and dance halls, with all the societal rules that follow that, to being in a gay club, very different, very, very different. So yeah, I found a lot of that sort of thing interesting, but it all felt like it was to do with fashion, not just fashion what was on the catwalk, but how to play with fashion in terms of the codes that it means in society. So fashion became, for me, such a fantastic world. The next sort of thing that happened, the portraits I did for ID magazine were picked up on by French art director Marc Ascoli, who was a sort of maverick art director working for Yoji Yamamoto, and whose job it was was to find photographers to do the campaigns. And he had a track record of either finding new young photographers, people like Max Viducal or Koto Belofo, or taking existing photographers like Paolo Reversi and changing their practice so fundamentally that they became avant-garde photographers. It was the campaign any young fashion photographer wanted to do. So I went to Paris and sat on the front row of the Yoji Amoto show in 1985-86. It's mind-blowing. I'd never been to that sort of space before, partly being in the middle of a sort of very, very important international fashion show, and also the world of Japanese fashion at that point, where you had quite a different aesthetic coming onto the international fashion scene. So designers like Mugler or Montana or Versace or Saint Laurent or Chanel were all about women's bodies. They're all producing imagery based on women's bodies or sexuality. A Yoji and Kong come along and they're saying, no, we're not interested in the body, we're interested in the mind, the soul. I felt, yeah, this, is, this makes exact sense for me. Because the whole sort of parody of a, of a sort of Lothario fashion photographer I found really embarrassing. And you, know, you didn't want to tell people you were a fashion photographer because they thought that you were that sort of a person. So the idea that you could do interesting fashion imagery but didn't have to be about sexuality, you know, most of photography at that point was about articulating your sexual desires through your fashion work, and that's what it had been encouraged to be ever since photographers like Horst and Heunig and Hune and Platt Lines on forward. And of course, with the sort of cultural revolution in the 1960s, you have photographers like Bailey and then 70s with Newton and Bourdain von Wagenheim, who are primarily articulating their fascination or obsession with sexuality. And then you, you know, in the early 80s, you've got Meisel and Lindbergh and Herberitz and you know, all these photographers 
Bruce Weber, who, you know, great photographers, but it is about their sexuality and about the love of human sexuality. I just didn't want to be part of that without sounding disrespectful. I saw that feels sort of tacky and not appropriate for what I want to do. Coming to Paris and seeing the fashion of Yoji Yamamoto in the middle of the 1980s and the omnipresence of the color black and dark, 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 dark blue, and this idea that it was about a woman's soul or woman's mind or the poetry or whatever, and not about showing her cleavage or her waist or her butt or her legs, I found totally absorbing. So I threw myself into it and literally for three years didn't really work for anybody other than Simon Foxton in London for ID Magazine and Yoji Moto in Paris. And I was fulfilled doing that. I learned a lot doing that. Do you feel like what you're describing just in terms of it being somewhat antithetical to what was trending at the times visually as being an early kind of example of your uh, constant looking towards the future rather than being referential or somewhat past driven? Because a great deal of your work, despite the fact that in past conversations, you said you're not necessarily a technophile, but it is quite sort of future oriented and you're not necessarily referential so much. And as a result, it's actually ended up being quite paradigm shifting in the industry and sort of led to new generation pursuing particular aesthetics that perhaps you've introduced or of course, fashion film, which is something we'll touch upon. But do you feel like this particular period that you're touching upon with Yoji and what you were doing at that time was kind of one of the first versions of you sort of looking outside of what was to something that was different or new or very forward? Yeah, I think it was. I think, as I described, the fashion was very much different to most fashion at the time. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't invited into the, you know, Vogue weren't interested in me at the beginning. So the fashion mainstream were not interested in me. And I wasn't very interested in them. It looked like stuff that wasn't my generation or my interest. So I think, yeah, Yoji felt like it was setting new new visuals, new fashion visuals, and it definitely felt revolutionary. They definitely felt that we were doing something different, and it wasn't for the same people, and no desire to be on the front cover of Vogue, no desire to be in it. I remember being quite surprised how upset they were when they eventually came to me and sort of said, well, we can give you four pages in the back of the magazine. Oh, no, thank you. I'm (laughs) quite happy doing my work for Yoji. I don't want to be treated and work that way and do that. It's not what interests me. You you have my my interests wholly. You misassume what I want to do in life. So I do think it was something that was coming from a different place, going to a different place. And I did feel that was on the outside of the system. And I think the system, you know, it then went much more commercial. I think the thing that happened to Vogue and to uh, mainstream of fashion is it wasn't making that much money, whereas it had the potential to. And I think Anna Wintour and LVMH and Mr. Arnaud saw the potential in commercialization of fashion and started to really, really push that. And therefore, they brought a lot of power behind that. But it was the sort of commercialization of an art form for financial profit and for financial gain. And it was incredibly useful for the industry because of financial profit helps the industry get bigger. Uh-huh. But I think it took a lot of the more artistic nature of some of the imagery and things that were going on in fashion. And I felt very much outside of that at that period in time. Well, that's a good point I'd love to expand upon before we jump into fashion film, which is the idea that you, someone who was already successful at this time that we're discussing, felt like an outsider. It's a Mm. common thread in the human experience and something we've touched upon in numerous episodes with various people. And I'd love to hear kind of a little bit more. 
the moment that you're describing now where you did feel like an outsider, was that sort of new at that time? Or was it something that you had felt as you were kind of coming up and finding your voice in the creative field? No, I think it's something I'd felt all the way along from the moment I was at college and started working for ID Magazine. I felt it was about, you know, a different way of doing things. It just felt to me, felt much closer to what I like. I can photograph people who I was fascinated with. I wasn't photographing, you know, enormously famous people. But I wasn't was interested in them. I was interested in the kind of weird looking kid in Bournemouth who was a bit of a kind of mess. I've always been interested in sort of, I guess, in the outsiders of society, because I think actually there's never any real outsiders because everybody wants to get to know them is, is a bit of an outsider. Well, that's actually another big part of your career is the discovery and support of new voices from talent to designers yeah. and really creating space for them. How important to you is playing that role in addition to the work that you generate yourself? I mean, it's not really playing a role. It's what I'm interested in. I don't want to lead too far forward, but Instagram has been an enormously useful platform for me to spot new talent. But even before Instagram, you know, you'd see people in the street who literally you would walk up to and say, hey, do you mind if I take your picture? Because you thought they looked really interesting. And then sometimes you get talking to them and sometimes, I mean, when you grow up, there's so much to learn. So you find out about so many different worlds. You know, there's something in this human condition that I find fascinating. And I'm always so thrilled when somebody can show me something that I didn't imagine, couldn't have imagined, something that I didn't know about. And that happens so much and just in life in all the different ways. And I think that I was always sort of fascinated by people, not just famous people, actually. To be honest, I was much less at ease with famous people, much more at ease with people who I'd just seen on the street. Now, you know, people you find on Instagram. One of the platforms that you've actually used to shed light on some of the people we're talking about in terms of supporting new talents and designers is, of course, Show Studio, which the insanity of it approaching its 23-year anniversary is just mind-blowing <laughs> because I think in our minds, as far as the industry audience, it's a platform that's still associated with innovation and newness, right? Be it the sort of voyeurism that you allowed into your creative process while filming yeah. shoots and, of course, you know the conversations that you brought around fashion, but the sort of pillar of it really was the invention essentially of fashion film, something that's ultimately been more widely practiced across the industry as a whole and seems to be gaining more steam with each passing day. So let's talk about the kind of genesis of Show Studio and your thoughts on how it's kind of disseminated throughout the industry as common practice when it comes to things like fashion film. Yeah, kind of, just probably because it's almost feel like it's chronological. So one should just have a mention of Alexander McQueen and John Galliano, who retained the next 10 years for me and tie into Starter Show Studio. So I worked pretty constantly for Yoji Amoto and Sire Fox in the 80s, in the 90s. I worked pretty constantly for John Galliano and Lee McQueen. So they became enormously, enormously inspiring for me. But during that time, it had also occurred to me that it was probably worth filming the things I was seeing happening in front of my camera. Whether it's a 17-year-old Naomi Campbell who's just been given a cassette by Prince, all these new songs, and that's what she wants to listen to and dance to while she's wearing a scarlet red Dior-inspired Yoja Moto coat looking like a colorful painting. You know, I'm thinking, there's six of us in this room that are going to see this, and that's it. And then everybody else would just see the two or three pictures that get published at the end of this. I think that's a bit of a shame. So I started filming Back in the 1980s, my sessions, 
I just put a camera on a tripod and tell everybody in a room all section that I was filming and were they okay with that? Everybody says, yeah, it's fine. And then they ignore it and just go on doing what they're doing, addressing, modeling, or whatever it is. And occasionally I'd look back through the tapes and think, well, actually, the lighting I'm using, which is so simple, I've always used the most simple lighting, one light I can get away with it. You know, it very well on film. So I'm thinking, well, why is it that whenever I see a film set, it's got like 80 people on it and these huge amounts of light? And it looks like rubbish, the end of it. Why is film lighting so bad? Why is it so bland and so solid? So when I started doing fashion films at the beginning, you know, when you say fashion film, people just say, right, you need a film set, so you need a gaffer and a grip and a best boy and a focus puller and a this, that, and the other, and you think, oh, okay, do I? And then it was like, no, I don't. That's film. Fashion film is a very different beast. In film world, you have a brilliant DOP or somebody holds a camera, et cetera, et cetera. That's the sort of standard where in photography, you couldn't imagine somebody holding you know, Helmut Newton's camera core. It just doesn't work. You know, in, in film, they don't understand the importance of people. They don't understand the importance of the model. In film, the model is just an actor with no dialogue, which I think is called an extra. They don't get it. They don't get that Sam McKnight or Julian Dees are megastars and so important. They have no idea that actually when you're taking a picture, every other second, Sam McKnight, the hairdresser, is going to go and change the hair a little bit. So when you go start filming, whatever expression they use, yeah, you're going to get the hairdresser in there every other second. It's a very, very different construct of filmmaking. And so I would look back through my films that I just literally had a video camera on a tripod without anybody watching through it, just recording and thinking, actually, this all works. And I thought, well, if it works for this, and why is fashion always shown as a still image? Because, you know, clothes aren't designed to be still. Every designer creates a piece of clothing to be seen in movement. Why is it fashion photography? Why shouldn't it be fashion in movement that is actually better? Because that's closer to what the designer saw as such an important part of it. Even things like the sound of clothes. This goes long back, but when you had those sort of early Charles James dresses, the sound of them. The taffeta on taffeta was a big selling point. All these sort of things which we acknowledge in life when it comes to creating imagery of fashion, it's been as well, well it's a fashion photograph. That's great, but it's not the best way of doing it. It can't be. It doesn't make sense because clothes move and they're designed to be seen in movement. So why are we doing photography? As much as I love fashion photography, as much as I absolutely immersed in it, as much as I spent my whole life trying to do it, you know, we should really look at doing this a new way. So... That thought I had at the beginning of the 90s, that realization after a couple of years of filming things, but of course, what do you do with a fashion film at the beginning of the 90s? There is no internet. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I will send out a VHS cassette to 20 people. The people I respect, you know, architects or singers or whatever. A bit like the Yoji Emoto catalogs, which they produce like 1,500 of them and then send them out to all the people that Yoji respects. So I'll do the same with a VHS cassette. I'll do 10 fashion films on it. To send it out. Anyway, I never got around to doing that. Although I started making fashion films, I think the first one I made was in 1992. But it never went anywhere. The art director didn't show it because what are you going to do with it? Stick it on a telly in the shop? No. So fashion film really didn't have a reason, you know, come a support. And then the internet came along in the mid 1990s. By then, two, three years later, I was starting to work out what it was. I thought, well, this is a global distribution network. Must be able to get fashion film on that, but technically it wasn't possible. Yeah, I remember the first live broadcast we did 
The only thing you could get out was a single webcam still every minute. But we still went ahead and did the live broadcast. We were still going out every minute and thinking, this is great. It's all the 30 people who probably watched it. But it was just a joy of nobody saying to you, oh, you can't do that. You shouldn't do this. Nobody was telling you you couldn't do it. So let's just go and do it. If you could broadcast McQueen making a dress, you know, that'd be exciting. So we started doing things like that. And there seemed to be suddenly things which like, you thought, oh, wait a minute, why do we always have to rely on the same journalists telling us about the fashion shows when they're not allowed to say anything negative about them because otherwise they've pulled their advertising from the magazine. Paul Magazine goes under, we don't have any advertising, so we can say what we think about fashion shows. In the old system, none of this worked. But in the new system, you could do all of this stuff. And I think that became to me such a sort of uplifting moment of freedom and experimentation. And then, of course, as you point out earlier on, I could work with people I loved. You know, I loved the work of Corinne and Craig and Dave Sims and Jurgen and all those guys. I could say to them, hey, why don't you do something for Show Studio? You know, yeah, sure, whatever it was, an interview with them or Fashion Pill or Stills or an interactive. One of the first pieces we got on Show Studio was interactive with Jurgen Teller. He did this book called Go Sees, just what the model industry sends out their young models to see a photographer, slightly inappropriately called Go Sees. Anyway, but when these girls would turn up at his door, he'd always sort of say to them, you know, as Jürgen does, you know, what you doing here? He'd have this sort of set of little things he'd say to them. And we put on an interactive with that. He would ask a question and you could choose a response. And from that response, he would then ask a different question than one we chose the other response. And so it was sort of like a network conversation. A lot of the people that were the image makers at times are people like Craig and Jürgen and all that sort of generation of image makers. You know, if they were kids, they wanted to just work or they wanted to do stuff. And then the young designers, people like Alexander McQueen or even Jock Adiat, no, all those people wanted to do new, exciting stuff. They didn't want to do the same thing. They didn't want to just end up with a good old page spread in a magazine or 10 pages or whatever. They wanted to do things they hadn't done before. And, you know, we all know from working on shoots, you do a big shoot like a Dior or Galliano shoot, and models come in and people dress up and there's music played and it's like an event. And of course, nobody sees that. They see the, you know, the retouch, you know, crop images all clean in the magazines or on the billboards or wherever it is. They don't see the event. They don't see that happening. They don't see the people dressing up and you know, doing sort of strange things and you know, all this activity that goes around the art of creating a fashion image. BTS became such a demand and such yeah. a common practice. Yeah, totally. Did you ever have any issues with permissions from brands to sort of get that access? No, because at the beginning they had no idea. None of had any idea what the internet was. <laughs> so nobody said anything. You know, we'd live stream Vogue shoots, we'd live stream stuff. Nobody knew. They weren't looking at it. They didn't see it relevant commercially until we live streamed Alexander McQueen, Plato Atlantis. That was a watershed moment, 2009, something like that. We live streamed his show. And then, unbeknownst to me, my dear friend Gaga, and said to him some months previous to that, if you're doing a show, I'd love to debut a single on it as the finale. And I didn't know that was going to happen. So he said something to me two months prior to that. I, was like, I might have this American singer who might use one of her songs in the show. Never registered on my, you know, this might be something you have to do anything about. 
And at the time, I didn't really know who Gaga was. And, you know, compared to where she is now, where she went, she was just the beginning. You know, we did the rehearsal, uh, played as Lantis, and the finale song was The Jungle Book, or Little Mermaid, one of those. So I wasn't thinking anything. We started live broadcasting it for the real event. And, of course, Gaga gets a go-ahead to release Bad Romance at the end of the fashion show. And the computers literally melted. I was sitting in behind this poor techie guy. Literally, the, the screens were just seizing up. Six million people trying to come and see one event. Anyway, it was sad because Lee McQueen was his last show. Uh, I was jumping out to us at the time, but he didn't get what he wanted to do, which was to get his fashion out in front of everybody, not just the fashion circles, that to anybody who wanted to get on the internet and go and see it. But it changed the fashion world. You know, the next season, 70% of all London fashion shows were broadcast live. So it made a huge change. You know, at the time, we didn't really realize the importance of what we were doing. We just felt like this was the right way to do it. And, you know, Lee McQueen has become recognized as one of the greatest fashion stars ever. But that wasn't true at the time. At the time, he was getting quite bad reviews by some journalists. So it wasn't like everybody in the fashion world supported him. Far from it. But the people who really latched onto him and really saw his potential were desperate to get in the shows, and they couldn't. So the idea that we'd be able to broadcast his shows to people who actually really wanted to see them, and his shows were like bits of fashion theatre. They were amazing. So why should they only be shown to a sort of slightly, not completely, but slightly sort of apathetic or disinterested audience of fashion critics and buyers? You know, it seemed to be a little bit of a kind of mismatch. So it seemed to be the obvious thing to do. It certainly set the entirety of the industry on a different trajectory ever since. I feel like a lot of what you're touching upon now, obviously, at the time was quite revolutionary. And in present day, it's sort of expected of any big luxury brand to have that live stream and, you know, BTS on anything. There's actually been conversations around the idea that hero imagery is sometimes less visible than the BTS, just in terms of the way it's disseminated and how people engage with certain types of content. Yeah, I seldom work for magazines anymore, I mean, occasionally. Mm -hmm. But I will never see the physical magazine. I'll see it when it comes out on the internet. I remember working for Italian Vogue and thinking, they haven't sent me an issue of this. Yeah, I've seen every picture a thousand times across Instagram. Why would I bother to get a magazine just to see how badly it's been printed? No. Uh I think the old system, the system that existed up until the internet was broken and started to increasingly break down in lots of different respects. And I think we arrived, when I say we, Show Studio arrived at the moment, where it was needed to be rethought, reproposed. It wasn't that we just wanted to do something differently. We just wanted to do something that was exciting and not constrained by all of the things that are constrained in the industry and forced into what it was. I think the one of the biggest things for Show Studio is it wasn't about making, and isn't about making money. Mm-hmm. It was not set up to make money. It's not a business. All of the sort of parameters that normally you follow, well, we better have Madonna on the front cover because she's going to bring a gazillion people. No, never reasoned like that. You know, let's have somebody who really thinks interesting and wants to work with us and wants to do exciting things because that's really exciting. It doesn't matter if 10 people see it, one person sees it, nobody sees it. Just do it because we want to do it because it's interesting and it feels like the thing we want to do. But it's been a labor of love. You know, money that I've made working for all sort of well-known brands where I do get paid a reasonable amount of money, that goes into show studio as how it keeps going. Over the years, lots of people have approached me and said, oh, why don't you, you know, have advertising? You know, I'll buy show studio and then we can... I thought, no, 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 no. And always it just becomes a thing. The reason I started it was to do something for the love of doing it and not just for making money. 
making money is fine. It's obviously it's fine. It's what it is. But uh, it it shouldn't be the sole reason of your artistic output. You you should do things just because you want to do them because you think they're exciting or challenging or new or whatever it is. Or you know, you shouldn't do things either because you're going to get paid or because you have an audience that wants that from you. You must ignore your audience and you must ignore the financial benefits of doing it or lack of. You've got to do it because you want to do it. Isn't that also the irony, though, is that when you sort of dismiss those external variables, such as anything from being driven by the commerce aspect or the expectations of the public, it's then that you actually end up being the most successful or ironically making the most money? Um, it's not been the case, to be honest. And success really? is a very, um, well, success is a very weird thing to kind of to gauge. Uh-huh. You know, if you do a photograph or a film or a sculpture or whatever it is now, where do you gather the idea of success from? Anything is just a step on a journey, and it's just another step. And you might get satisfaction or pleasure or feel you've been able to see perhaps some things you couldn't see before, and it might become a moment where it becomes you're a little bit clearer about what you're trying to achieve. But success is a weird thing to mention. It's lovely. I mean, I, I, for the last 10 years, I've been photographing roses, and for all intents and purposes, they've been widely appreciated, and people do like them. And people want to buy the prints. That's lovely. But it doesn't lovely. make me feel that, A, photographing a rose this coming weekend will be any easier, or B, that I should keep on doing it for those reasons. I do it for my own personal reasons, and it's never easy. And if it is easy, I don't want to do it. So you don't really work for those things. I get what you're saying. Sometimes it is the fact that you do something because you really, truly care about it. And that, I would argue, is the only way you should do something because you really, truly care about it because that's the only way it can become the best thing you can do. If you're just accepting things because of the money or just accepting things because you think it'll get you another 100,000 followers or 10,000 or five or whatever it is, you're just doing it for the, for the likes or the followers. That's not very satisfying or good reason to do the piece of work. It's a natural human need to want to have praise and to want to see that people like what you're doing. And there has to be a, some sort of relationship entertained there between doing something for your audience and doing something for yourself. Very hard when you do something and nobody seems to like it, even if you think it's brilliant. But that's what you have to do. And you have to keep on doing it as long as it's relevant to you. And then you stop. You don't keep on doing it just because people like your work like it. My relationship with my audience is quite tricky. You know, I'm deeply happy that I can now work in a way where I feel in contact with my audience. Back before the internet, you would do a story for a magazine or you do an advertising campaign, and you had no audience feedback whatsoever, no way of gauging what the public who saw your pictures thought of them. And in a way, to be honest, Christopher, I quite like that. I like the fact that people saw my pictures because they were going to the greengrocers and they happened to pass one in the street or they were on the bus going to work and they'd see it as they passed it. And they wouldn't be invited to an exhibition to see it and they wouldn't know who I was or even up. I was part of the image, they're just the image, that it would be relevant or not relevant to them. But I liked that anonymity of the artist, the fact that me as a person wasn't part of the reason that people saw that image. So I like working in that sort of sphere where your work is shown on the back of a bus, in a magazine, on a billboard or wherever it is, but it isn't presented in the gallery or a book, which people who already like your work are going to or, or buying. For me, that's always been the challenge, is to get through to people who might not in any way share your views on life or what you think. 
but you're getting through to my remember the, the weird, not sure they should tell this anecdote, but the weird um, <laughs> thing, because there's a whole thing about work existing after it leaves your hands and where it mm-hmm. goes in life. And I've been sort of trying to document that over the years by actually going to where there's a billboard of my work on the sort of motorway, putting a camera there and photographing the back of it to show what environment it lives in and that sort of nature behind it and those sorts of things. And you see very classically, it's like the, the great pictures of the 1930s and Depression in America, where you see the sort of queue of people starving and queuing up for food handouts underneath a sort of happy family in the car, the American dream. That sort of juxtaposition between real life and the billboard or the advertising. So I photograph that quite regularly. When my work does appear in public, I'm quite interested in that junction. The idea that you're not part of the reason people like or dislike your work. Your work should stand or fall for what it is and the relevance to people who see it. And it shouldn't be sort of, you should really go and see this exhibition by so-and-so because blah, blah, blah. I've never really adhered to that. So that's why I've had so few exhibitions. But I think you're touching upon something that is a common struggle in the creative community today, which is this sort of sense that one has to be a star in order to be a relevant creative and their work is no longer enough to go out and be put into the world and speak for itself if they don't necessarily have the digital footprint and presence to sort of back it up or validate it because the things that inform value are somewhat different in in those ways. So there's almost something romantic about the way you're describing kind of putting the work out into the world in a way that's unattached to you as an individual and allowing the kind of consumer to just engage with it accordingly. Yeah, the relationship to my work, I used to really, really feel I didn't want people to know who I was, that I didn't want to have a public presence, I hated being out, I didn't want to be on the front row, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. And I thought, well, that's strange behavior, because what have you got to hide? And also, I do interviews, I've always loved speaking to people. So, you know, I'm quite happy to do an interview. So I really have to assume to some degree that I have a physicality and a personality and a character and everything else. And that is part of who I am. So suppressing that just becomes a bit weird itself um, and slightly kind of an odd position intellectually to hold. And you know, show studio is exactly what it says. It shows a studio. So I'm live on camera nearly every day of the week. And I accept that. I'm quite happy for that. I think I've spent the last sort of 23 years of show studio Becoming a complete at ease with my mistakes and my faults and my shortcomings and everything else. Because I'm only human and actually in other people, it is their shortcomings, their mistakes and their failures that I like. I'm very happy to acknowledge that both in terms of who I am, what I've done and what I'm doing is part of my work. And also the physicality of taking a photograph or creating a film. So it's a sort of, you know, it's a learning curve that sort of, you know, keeps on going. I know that in one of our past interviews together, you mentioned that you're not particularly a technophile or obsessed with technology, and yet your work and the way you've moved through the world or had an impact on its evolution as far as the fashion industry and image making does feel directly correlated to technology. So what are your thoughts on these recent developments or the approaching arrival of new spaces and markets such as the metaverse, whether or not we're going to be calling it that, who knows, but let's hear about your thoughts there. But it sort of feels like the complete path Show Studio was on. So almost Isn't without knowing it to beginning, it makes perfect sense what we do at Show Studio and what have, we have done at Show Studio over the years. I mean, before we started Show Studio, we were 3D scanning models to put on a virtual catwalk. You know, one of the first pieces is called Sweet, which back in 1998 or 1999, we shot it or 3D scanned it and created it. So this sort of idea of creating virtual worlds or avatars 
has been part of Show Studio right from the very beginning. So it actually makes just total sense. And as it started to erupt much more in the last sort of three years since COVID, it just felt so exciting. And the enthusiasm that I started Show Studio with felt completely, I just felt the same sort of, ah, this is amazing. And you can't believe this is happening. A kind of total sort of almost childlike joy at the possibilities that are stretching out in front of me. And the possibilities you know, that could lead to other possibilities and the, the fast pace of change and everything. And we've been working within the space very succinctly with AI and avatars and stuff very solidly for the last three years, I guess. I had to create an avatar just recently, an AI, actually it was AI more than avatar, for Show Studios, a fashion critic. And I had to create their voice, their look, their knowledge. And I'm thinking, this is just an expansion of what I do in any case. You know, I wanted the picture of Devon for Alexander McQueen. I was creating a persona. And now, the skills I can bring to play, I can bring in not only just their visual, but I can also bring in their, the sound of their voice. And I can bring in, who are they as people? And it's fascinating. You get a sort of, on a basic level, you get a range of characteristics. Do you want your avatar to be cheerful, flirtatious, sarcastic? blunt, whatever it is. And it's a slider. It's literally a kind of from 0% to 100%. You really do not want 100% sarcastic, by the way, not even less 100% blunt, both of which I tried and are actually quite upsetting. So, you know, it's just a continuation on of the sort of, you know, the world I've been working in and living in probably forever. So I don't see anything in the past that there hasn't been in a way doing what I'm doing now. I just now have more tools for it. The idea that I can put knowledge into an AI and it will respond accordingly and pull on it and use it and use chat GPT and everything that's out on the internet. It's kind of where we were going in any case. So now it's just possible. I think it's all great. You hear so much scaremongering that the whole of the conversation around AI, new intelligence, hyperintelligence, et cetera, et cetera, is just defensive because it's just awash with kind of it's going to kill humanity, you know, we're all going to be controlled by robots, blah, 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 which might indeed be the case. But that's a slightly weird and very, very arrogant presumption that we are the best we can be, that we are the end of the evolutionary chain. You know, the humans, as we know us now, cannot be improved upon. We're in part of an evolutionary journey. So, of course, we can be improved upon. We will evolve naturally or you know, help on that journey. So. I don't see that therefore it follows that, you know, if there's another more intelligent form of life, whether it's silicon-based or whatever, which is starting to emerge and starting to come through, you know, that we should kill it off, stamp it out. It's very hard because, of course, people get very emotive about it for very good reasons. It reminds me of the sort of religious persecution and the sort of, you know, you can't not believe in this God or the world will end and blah, blah, blah. It's the sort of things you heard about or being said and written about when photography came along. You know, it's just a machine. They can never replace the human feelings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It just feels like I've seen and heard these conversations before. And in the end, why are we here? One has to say, and one does in life, what do we exist for? What's our purpose? And maybe humankind's purpose is to be the custodians of intelligence. And maybe that needs to be passed on to somebody who can do it better. And therefore, in a lifeless, intelligentless universe, we could indeed be part of the only area of intelligence in the whole universe. It sort of 
feels that we have an important duty to kind of keep intelligence going and not just fiercely protect the stage of evolution that we're at. That starts to get into a whole bunch of very, very big topics. But it is my sort of reasoning for it. And I read during COVID, I read two books. One was Novacine, and the other one was the Bible. And just both fascinating. Novacine is the rise of hyperintelligence. And it's by James Lovelock, who was a great writer. He, he sort of coined the Gaia theory about Earth being a sort of intelligent thing. He wrote the book Novacine when he was 102. So he's an intelligent and interesting man, sadly now dead. But I read the Bible and I read Novacine, and it really got me thinking. I mean, it really got me thinking. Look, I'm an atheist, so it doesn't, you know, I wasn't reading it to, for enlightenment. I was reading it because we were in COVID and lockdown. So I thought, well, I should read something, and I'm not going to read War and Peace or Mein Kampf or anything like that. So why don't I read another book that's always been throughout my life, always been there, always been referred to? Because otherwise, whatever assumptions I make on it, they're without fact. So at least I should read the fact of what the Bible is, and, you know, and belief systems and, you know, about to start reading the Quran. So I am fascinated in spirituality and fascinated with people's beliefs. And I've worked alongside Kanye West when he became very religious and very spiritual. And one of my good friends is a teacher of Islam. I have enormous amount of respect for people who have belief. Just because I don't doesn't mean I can't respect them or, or don't respect them. I do. But I want to find out. I don't want to be just sort of presuming or assuming. But I do find the whole thing sort of fascinating. And that gets us into much, much bigger territory than some of the other topics we talked about. But it does explain, perhaps, why I'm so enthusiastic that we should continue to try and work with this. And then you're dealing with immortality. And I was saying to Charlotte on the way in here this morning, you know, at some point, somebody will be driving down these roads. They will look exactly the same. Apart from you and I will be dead. We'll no longer be here. But this road will still be here. And you start thinking about immortality. I'm 64, so it's not an unreasonable or perverse thing to think about. And you think, well, I'm leaving so much data, so much information. And we all are across the internet. And an AI can easily submit that. If I died today, my Instagram account would not be shut down. I'd still bubble along. And a lot of the stuff that I've said will still be out there. A lot of my thoughts will still be out there. And so in a way, are we creating our own immortality by working in this? Is that something we shouldn't be doing? So they're not resolved. And any more than we started fashion film or started live broadcasting, it was resolved or its purpose was worked out beforehand. It's all things that can create new art, new visions, new ways of expressing ourselves. And so I'm fascinated by all that. I have to say that was my favorite answer to date from anyone on the <laughs> subject of AI and the future that we all face, because I think it's also an incredibly powerful reminder of how important perspective is in terms of the ways it informs our experience of life and how we move through the world, which leads to our last and final question, which I can't wait to hear your answer on. And that's, of course, what do you think is contemporary now? Well, it feels like there's a huge change in thinking going on at the moment. I really think that there is a kind of incredibly important shift that is happening and has to happen. I don't think that the world can go on as it is. Quite clearly, it can't. And so I think contemporary now is a contemporary reevaluation of a whole range of issues which we've accepted throughout the last sort of 200 years, or since, since Renaissance, really, as the right ways of doing things. So I think what is contemporary now is a reevaluation of everything that we hold true. And I think that's incredibly important and necessary. 
and things like artificial intelligence, our ability to communicate as a species like we never could before, really are the most sort of contemporary thing for me. Beautifully said, and thank you so much for such an incredible conversation. I'm definitely going to have to listen to this one multiple times over to read <laughs> the depth of wisdom you shared today. So thank you again. Uh, thank you for saying that. That's very kind. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes, and for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary, or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com. 